0: The Sleepy Bookshelf should have something for everyone. If we are missing your favorite story, you can vote for future books on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, it's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be returning again to Anne of Avonlea, but before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a deep breath in and a long, slow exhale. gently close your eyes and have another nice big inhale. Slowly breathe out again and start to feel your body relax. Keep breathing deeply and on the next slow exhale, allow yourself to fully arrive into this body into this moment, and into this breath. Now find a natural breath for you, and just be here. Leave behind all the stresses of the day, all the thoughts and worries of what you need to do tomorrow. Gift yourself, this time for you, while I recap on the last episode. Last time, Anne was pleasantly surprised when she explained to Mr. Harrison how she had mistakenly sold his cow. He wasn't cross or upset like she expected, He accepted her apology and the offer of her cow, Dolly, as a replacement. She had brought him a cake, which he asked her to share with him over a cup of tea. Anne asked to prepare the meal with his direction and overlooked the sorry state of Mr. Harrison's home. Aside from his rude parrot, continuously calling Anne a red-headed snippet. She had a rather good time and promised to visit him often. On the eve of the 1st of September, the beginning of the school term, Anne had a heated debate with Jane and Gilbert about the merits of whipping your pupils Anne was fiercely against the practice, hoping instead to win her students' affections. Jane was entirely for corporal punishment as a quick solution to naughtiness, while Gilbert decided it should be used only as a last resort. Seeing Mrs. Lynde was at Green Gables when she arrived home, Anne wandered over to Mr. Harrison's to avoid a lecture and there had to reinstate her position on whips and straps all over again. We pick back up the morning of the first day of school with Anne feeling very apprehensive indeed. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 5 A Fully Fledged School Mom When Anne reached the school that morning, for the first time in her life, she had traversed the birch path, deaf and blind to its beauties. All was still and quiet. The preceding teacher had trained the children to be in their places at her arrival, and when Anne entered the schoolroom, she was confronted by prim rows of shining morning faces and bright, inquisitive eyes. She hung up her hand and faced her pupils, hoping that she did not look as frightened and foolish as she felt and that they would not perceive how she was trembling. She had sat up until nearly twelve the preceding night, composing a speech she meant to make to her pupils upon opening the school. She had revised and improved it painstakingly, and then she had learnt it off by heart. It was a very good speech, and had some very fine ideas in it, especially about mutual help and earnest, striving after knowledge. The only trouble was she could not now remember a word of it. After what seemed to her a year, about 10 seconds in reality, she said faintly, take your testaments, please, and sank breathlessly into her chair, under cover of the rustle and clatter of desk lids that followed. While the children read their verses, Anne marshalled her shaky wits into order and looked over the array of little pilgrims to the grown-up land. Most of them were, of course, quite well known to her. Her own classmates had passed out in the preceding year, but the rest had all gone to school with her, excepting the primer class and ten newcomers to Avonlea. Anne secretly felt more interest in these ten than in those whose possibilities were already fairly well mapped out to her. To be sure, they might be just as commonplace as the rest. But on the other hand, there might be a genius among them. It was a thrilling idea. Sitting by himself at a corner desk was Anthony Pye. He had a dark, sullen little face, and was staring at Anne with a hostile expression in his black eyes. Anne instantly made up her mind that she would win that boy's affection and discomfort the pies utterly. In the other corner, another strange boy was sitting with Artie Sloan, a jolly-looking little chap with a snub nose, freckled face, and big, light blue eyes, fringed with whitish lashes, probably the Donald boy, and if resemblance went for anything, his sister was sitting across the aisle with Mary Bell. Anne wondered what sort of mother the child had to send her to school dressed as she was. She wore a faded pink silk dress trimmed with a great deal of cotton lace soiled white kid slippers and silk stockings. Her sandy hair was tortured into innumerable kinky and unnatural curls, surmounted by a flamboyant bow of pink ribbon bigger than her head. Judging from her expression, she was very well satisfied with herself. A pale little thing, with smooth ripples of fine, silky, fawn-colored hair flowing over her shoulders, must, Anne thought, be Annetta Bell, whose parents had formerly lived in the Newbridge School District, but by reason of hauling their house 50 yards north of its old site, were now in Avonlea. Three pallid little girls crowded into one seat were certainly cottons, and there was no doubt that the small beauty with the long brown curls and hazel eyes, who was casting a coquettish look at Jack Gills over the edge of her testament, was Prilly Rogerson, whose father had recently married a second wife and brought Prilly home from her grandmothers in Grafton. A tall, awkward girl in a back seat who seems to have too many feet and hands, Anne could not place at all, but later on discovered that her name was Barbara Shaw and that she had come to live with an Avonlea aunt. She was also to find if Barbara ever managed to walk down the aisle without falling over her own or somebody else's feet, the Avonlea scholars wrote the unusual fact up on the porch wall to commemorate it. But when Anne's eyes met those of the boy at the front desk facing her own, a queer little thrill went over her as if she had found her genius. She knew this must be Paul Irving, and that Mrs. Rachel Lynde had been right for once when she prophesied that he would be unlike the Avonlea children. More than that, Anne realized that he was unlike other children anywhere, and that there was a soul subtly akin to her own, gazing at her out of the very dark blue eyes that were watching her so intently. She knew Paul was ten, but he looked no more than eight. He had the most beautiful little face she had ever seen in a child, features of exquisite delicacy and refinement framed in a halo of chestnut curls. His mouth was delicious, being full without pouting, the crimson lips just softly touching and curving into finely finished little corners that narrowly escaped being dimpled. He had a sober, grave, meditative expression as if his spirit was much older than his body. But when Anne smiled softly at him, vanished in a sudden, answering smile, which seemed an illumination of his whole being, as if some lamp had suddenly kindled into flame inside of him, irradiating him from top to toe. Best of all, It was involuntary, born of no external effort or motive, but simply the outflashing of a hidden personality, rare and fine and sweet. With a quick interchange of smiles, Anne and Paul were fast friends forever, before a word had passed between them. The day went by like a dream. Anne could never clearly recall it afterwards. It almost seemed as if it were not she who was teaching, somebody else. She heard classes and worked up sums and set copies mechanically. The children behaved quite well. Only two cases of discipline occurred. Morley Andrews was caught driving a pair of trained crickets into the aisle, and stood Morley on the platform for an hour, and, which Morley felt much more keenly, confiscated his crickets. She put them in a box, and on the way home from school, set them free in Violet Vale. But Morley believed, then and ever afterwards, that she took them home and kept them for her own amusement. The other culprit was Anthony Pye, who poured the last drops of water from his slate bottle down the back of Aurelia Clay's neck. Anne kept Anthony in at recess and talked to him about what was expected of gentlemen, admonishing him that they never poured water down ladies' necks. She wanted all her boys to be gentlemen, she said. Her little lecture was quite kind and touching, but unfortunately, Anthony remained absolutely untouched. He listened to her in silence, with the same sullen expression, and whistled scornfully as he went out, Anne sighed and then cheered herself up by remembering that winning a pie's affections, like the building of Rome, wasn't the work of a day. In fact, it was doubtful whether some of the pies had any affections to win, but Anne hoped better things of Anthony, who looked as if he might be a rather nice boy if one ever got behind his sullenness. When school was dismissed and the children had gone, Anne dropped wearily into her chair. Her head ached and she felt woefully discouraged. There was no real reason for discouragement, since nothing very dreadful had occurred. But Anne was very tired and inclined to believe that she would never learn to like teaching and how terrible it would be to be doing something you didn't like every day for, well, say, 40 years. Anne was of two minds, whether to have her cry out there and then, or wait till she was safely in her own white room at home. Before she could decide, there was a click of heels and a silken swish on the porch floor and Anne found herself confronted by a lady whose appearance made her recall a recent criticism of Mr. Harrison's on an overdressed female he had seen in a Charlottetown store. She looked like she had a head-on collision between a fashion plate and a nightmare. The newcomer was gorgeously arrayed in a pale blue summer silk, puffed, frilled, and sheared wherever puff, frill, or shearing could possibly be placed. Her head was surmounted by a huge white chiffon hat, bedecked with three long but rather stringy ostrich feathers, a veil of pink chiffon lavishly sprinkled with huge black dots hung like a flounce from the hat brim to her shoulders, and floated off in two airy streamers behind her. She wore all the jewelry that could be crowded on one small woman, and a very strong odor of perfume attended her. "'I am Mrs. Donnell, Mrs. H. B. Donnell,' announced this vision. And I have come in to see you about something Clarice Almira told me when she came home to dinner today. It annoyed me excessively. I'm sorry, faltered Anne, vainly trying to recollect any incident of the morning connected with the Donald children. Clarice Almira told me that you pronounced our name Donal. Now, Miss Shirley, the correct pronunciation of our name is Donnell, accent on the last syllable. I hope you'll remember this in future. I'll try to, said Anne, choking back a wild desire to laugh. I know by experience that it's very unpleasant to have one's name spelled wrong. I suppose it must be even worse to have it pronounced wrong. Certainly it is. And Clarice Almira also informed me that you called my son Jacob. He told me his name was Jacob, protested Anne. I might have expected that said Mrs. H.B. Donnell, in a tone which implied that gratitude in children was not to be looked for in this degenerate age. That boy has such plebeian tastes, Miss Shirley. When he was born, I wanted to call him St. Clair. Sounds so aristocratic, doesn't it? but his father insisted he should be called Jacob after his uncle. "'I yielded because Uncle Jacob was a rich old bachelor. And what do you think, Miss Shirley? When our innocent boy was five years old, Uncle Jacob actually went and got married, and now he has three boys of his own. Did you ever hear of such ingratitude?' the moment the invitation to the wedding, for he had the impertinence to send us an invitation, Miss Shirley, came to the house, I said, No more Jacobs for me, thank you. From that day, I called my son St. Clair, and St. Clair, I'm determined he shall be called. His father obstinately continues to call him Jacob, and the boy himself, has a perfectly unaccountable preference for the vulgar name. But St. Clair he is, and St. Clair he shall remain. You will kindly remember this, Miss Shirley, will you not? Thank you. I told Clarice Almira that I was sure it was only a misunderstanding, and that a word would set it right. Donnell accent on the last syllable, and St. Clair. On no account, Jacob. You'll remember. Thank you. When Mrs. H.B. Donnell had skimmed away, Anne locked the school door and went home. At the foot of the hill, she found Paul Irving by the birch path. He held out to her a cluster of the dainty little wild orchids which Avonlea children called rice lilies. "'Please, teacher, I found these in Mr. Wright's field,' he said shyly. "'And I came back to give them to you "'because I thought you were the kind of lady that would like them. "'And because,' he lifted his big, beautiful eyes. "'I like you, teacher.' "'You darling!' said Anne, taking the fragrant spikes. As if Paul's words had been a spell of magic, discouragement and weariness passed from her spirit, and hope upwelled in her heart like a dancing fountain. She went through the birch path, light-footedly, attended by the sweetness of her orchids as by a benediction. Well, how did you get along? Marilla wanted to know. Ask me that a month later and I may be able to tell you. I can't now. I don't know myself. I'm too near it. My thoughts feel as if they had all been stirred up until they were thick and muddy. The only thing I feel really sure of having accomplished today is that I taught Cliff Wright that A is A. He never knew it before. Isn't it something to have started a soul along a path that may end in Shakespeare and Paradise Lost? Mrs. Lynde came up later on with more encouragement. That good lady had waylaid the schoolchildren at her gate and demanded of them how they liked their new teacher. And every one of them said they liked you splendid Anne. "'Except Anthony Pie. "'Must admit he didn't. "'He said, "'You weren't any good just like all girl teachers. "'There's the Pie Leaven for you, but never mind.' "'I'm not going to mind,' said Anne quietly. "'And I'm going to make Anthony Pie like me yet. "'Patience and kindness will surely win him.' "'Well, you never can tell about a pie,' said Mrs. Rachel cautiously. They go by contraries, like dreams often as not. As for that Donnell woman, she'll get no Donnelling from me, I can assure you. The name is Donnell, and always has been. The woman is crazy, that's what. She has a pug dog she calls Queenie, and it has its meals at the table, along with the family eating off a china plate. I'd be afraid of a judgment if I was her. Thomas says Donald himself is a sensible, hard-working man, but he hadn't much gumption when he picked out a wife, that's what. Chapter 6 All Sorts and Conditions of Men and Women A September day on Prince Edward Island Hills, crisp wind blowing up over the sand dunes from the sea, a long red road winding through fields and woods, now looping itself about a corner of thick-set spruces, now threading a plantation of young maples, with great feathery sheets of ferns beneath them, now dipping down into a hollow where a brook flashed out of the woods and into them again, now basking in open sunshine between ribbons of golden rod and smoke-blue asters. Air a-thrilled, with the pipings of myriads of crickets, those glad little pensioners of the summer hills. A plump brown pony ambling along the road, two girls behind him, full to the lips with the simple, priceless joy of youth and life. Oh, this is a day left over from Eden, isn't it, Diana? And Dan sighed for sheer happiness. The air has magic in it. Look at the purple in the cup of the Harvest Valley, Diana. And oh, do smell the dying fur. It's coming up from that little sunny hollow where Mr. Eben Wright has been cutting fence poles. Oh, bliss is it on such a day to be alive. But to smell dying fur is very heaven. That's two-thirds Wordsworth and one-third Anne Shirley. Doesn't seem possible that there should be dying fur in heaven, does it? And it doesn't seem to me that heaven would be quite perfect if you couldn't get a whiff of dead fur as you went through its woods. Perhaps we'll have the odour there without the death. Yes, yeah, I think that will be the way. That delicious aroma must be the souls of the firs. Of course, it will just be the souls in heaven. Trees haven't souls, said practical Diana. But the smell of dead fir is certainly lovely. I'm going to make a cushion and fill it with fir needles. You better make one too, Anne. I think I shall, and use it for my naps. I'd be certain to dream I was a dryad or a wood nymph then. Just this minute, I'm well content to be Anne Shirley, Avonlea school mom, driving over a road like this on such a sweet, friendly day. It's a lovely day, but we haven't anything but a lovely task before us, sighed Diana. Why on earth did you offer to canvas this road, Anne? Almost all the cranks in Avonlea live along it, and will probably be treated as if we were begging for ourselves. It's the very worst road of all. That's why I chose it course Gilbert and Fred would have taken this road if we'd have asked them. You see, Diana, I feel myself responsible for the AVIS, since I was the first to suggest it. It seems to me that I ought to do the most disagreeable things. I'm sorry on your account, but you needn't say a word at the cranky places. I'll do the talking. Mrs. Lind would say I was well able to. Mrs. Lynde doesn't know whether to approve of our enterprise or not. She inclines to when she remembers that Mr. and Mrs. Allen are in favor of it. But the fact that the Village Improvement Societies first originated in the States is a count against it. So she has a halting between two opinions, and only success will justify us in Mrs. Lynde's eyes. Priscilla is going to write a paper for our next improvement meeting, I expect it will be good, for her aunt is such a clever writer. No doubt it runs in the family. I shall never forget the thrill it gave me when I found out that Mrs. Charlotte E. Morgan was Priscilla's aunt. It seemed so wonderful that I was a friend of the girl whose aunt wrote Edgewood Days and The Rosebud Garden. Where does Mrs. Morgan live? In Toronto, and Priscilla says she is coming to the island for a visit next summer. And if it is possible, Priscilla is going to arrange to have us meet her. Seems almost too good to be true, but something pleasant to imagine after you go to bed. The Avonlea Village Improvement Society was an organised fact. Gilbert Blythe was president, Fred Wright, vice president. Anne Shirley, secretary, and Diana Barry, treasurer. The improvers, as they were promptly christened, were to meet once a fortnight at the homes of the members. It was admitted that they could not expect to effect many improvements so late in the season, but they meant to plan the next summer's campaign, collect and discuss ideas, write and read papers, and, as Anne said, educate the public sentiment generally. There was some disapproval, of course, and, which the improvers felt much more keenly, a good deal of ridicule. Mr. Alicia Wright was reported to have said that a more appropriate name for the organization would be Courting a Club. Mrs. Hiram Sloan, declared that she heard the improvers meant to plow up all the roadsides and set them out with geraniums. Mr. Levi Balter warned his neighbors that the improvers would insist that everybody pull down his house and rebuild it after plans approved by the society. Mr. James Spencer sent them word that he wished they would kindly shovel down the church hill. Eben Wright, told Anne that he wished the improvers could induce old Josiah Sloan to keep his whiskers trimmed. Mr. Lawrence Bell said he would whitewash his barns if nothing else would please them, but he would not hang lace curtains in the cow stable windows. Mr. Major Spencer asked Clifton Sloan, an improver who drove the milk to the Carmody cheese factory, if it was true that everybody would have to have his milk stand hand-painted next summer and keep an embroidered centerpiece on it. In spite of, or perhaps human nature being what it is because of, this, the society went gamely to work the only improvement they could hope to bring about that fall. At the second meeting in the Barry Parlor, Oliver Sloan moved that they start a subscription to re-shingle and paint the hall. Julia Bell seconded it with an uneasy feeling that she was doing something not exactly ladylike. Gilbert put the motion, it was carried, unanimously, and Anne gravely recorded it in her minutes. The next thing was to appoint a committee, and Gertie Pye, determined not to let Julia Bell carry off all the laurels, boldly moved that Miss Jane Andrews be chairman of said committee. This motion being also duly seconded and carried, Jane returned the compliment by appointing Gertie on the committee, along with Gilbert, Anne, Diana, and Fred Wright. The committee chose their routes in private conclave. Anne and Diana were told off for the Newbridge Road, Gilbert and Fred for the White Sands Road, and Jane and Gertie for the Carmody Road. Because, explained Gilbert to Anne as they walked home together through the haunted wood, the pies live along that road, and they won't give a cent unless one of themselves canvasses them. The next Saturday, Anne and Diana started out. They drove to the end of the road and canvassed homeward, calling first on the Andrew girls. If Catherine is alone, we may get something, said Diana, but if Eliza is there, we won't. Eliza was there, very much so, and looked even grimmer than usual. Miss Eliza was one of those people who give you the impression that life is indeed a veil of tears, and that a smile, never to speak of a laugh, It's a waste of nervous energy, truly reprehensible. The Andrew girls had been girls for 50-odd years and seemed likely to remain girls to the end of their earthly pilgrimage. Catherine, it was said, had not entirely given up hope, but Eliza, who was born a pessimist, had never had any. They lived in a little brown house, built in a sunny corner, scooped out of Mark Andrews' beech woods. Eliza complained that it was terrible hot in summer, but Catherine was wont to say it was lovely and warm in winter. Eliza was sewing patchwork, not because it was needed simply as a protest against the frivolous lace Catherine was crocheting. Eliza listened with a frown, and Catherine with a smile, as the girls explained their errand. To be sure, whenever Catherine caught Eliza's eye, she discarded the smile in guilty confusion, but it crept back in the next moment. For I had money to waste, said Eliza grimly. I'd burn it up and have the fun of seeing a blaze, maybe, but I wouldn't give it to that hall, not a cent. It's no benefit to the settlement. Just a place for young folks to meet and carry on when they'd better be home in their beds. Oh, Eliza, young folks must have some amusement, protested Catherine. I don't see the necessity. We didn't gad about to halls and places when we were young, Catherine Andrews. This world is getting worse every day. I think it's getting better, said Catherine firmly. You think? Miss Eliza's voice expressed the utmost contempt. It doesn't signify what you think, Catherine Andrews. Facts is facts. Well, I always like to look on the bright side, Eliza. There isn't any bright side. Oh, indeed there is, said Anne, who couldn't endure such heresy in silence. Why, there are ever so many bright sides, Miss Andrews. It really is a beautiful world. You won't have such a high opinion of it when you've lived as long in it as I have retorted Miss Eliza sourly. "'And you won't be so enthusiastic about improving it, either. "'How is your mother, Diana? "'Dear me, she has failed of late. "'She looks terrible run down. "'And how long is it before Marilla expects to be stone blind, Anne?' "'The doctor thinks her eyes will not get any worse if she is very careful.' faltered Anne. Eliza shook her head. I've talked us always talk like that just to keep people cheered up. I wouldn't have much hope if I was her. It's best to be prepared for the worst. But wouldn't we be prepared for the best, too? pleaded Anne. It's just as likely to happen as the worst. Not in my experience, and I've lived 50 years to set against your 16, retorted Eliza. Going, are you? (laughs) Well, I hope this new society of yours will be able to keep Avonlea from running any further downhill, but I haven't much hope of it. Anne and Diana got themselves thankfully out and drove away as fast as the fat pony could go. As they rounded the curve below the beech wood, a plump figure came speeding over Mr. Andrews's pasture, waving to them excitedly. It was Catherine Andrews, and she was so out of breath that she could hardly speak, but she thrust a couple of quarters into Anne's hand. That's my contribution to painting the hall, she gasped. I'd like to give you a dollar, but I don't dare take more from my egg money, for Eliza would find out if I did. I'm really interested in your society. I believe you're going to do a lot of good. I'm an optimist. I have to be living with Eliza, but I must hurry back before she misses me. She thinks I'm feeding the hens. <laughs> I hope you'll we'll have good luck canvassing, and don't be cast down over what Eliza said. The world is getting better. It certainly is. The next house was Daniel Blair's. Now it all depends on whether his wife is home or not, said Diana as they jolted along a deep, rutted lane. If she is, we won't get a cent. Everybody says Dan Blair doesn't dare have his hair cut without asking her permission and it's certain she's very close, stated moderately. She says she has to be just before she's generous. But Mrs. Lynn says she's so much before that generosity never catches up with her at all. Anne related their experience, the Blair Place, to Marilla that evening. We tied the horse and then rapped at the kitchen door. Well nobody came, but the door was open, and we could hear somebody in the pantry, going on dreadfully. We couldn't make out the words, but Diana says she knows they were swearing by the sound of them. Can't believe that of Mr. Blair, he's always so quiet and meek, but at least he had great provocation for Marilla. When that poor man came to the door, red as a beet, with perspiration streaming down his face. He had on one of his wife's big gingham aprons. I can't get this darn thing off, he said, for the strings are tied in a hard knot and I can't bust them, so you'll have to excuse me, ladies. We begged him not to mention it and went in and sat down. Mr. Blair sat down too. He twisted the apron around his back and rolled it up. But he did look so ashamed and worried that I felt sorry for him, and Diana said she feared we had called this an inconvenient time. Oh, not at all, said Mr. Blair, trying to smile. You know, he's always very polite. I'm a little busy, getting ready to bake a cake, as it were. My wife got a telegram today that her sister from Montreal is coming tonight and she's gone to the train to meet her and left orders for me to bake a cake for tea. She writ out the recipe and told me what to do, but I've clean forgot half the directions already. And it says, flavor according to taste. What does that mean? How can you tell? And what if my taste doesn't happen to be other people's taste? Would a tablespoon of vanilla be enough for a small layer cake? I felt sorrier than anything. Ever for the poor man. He didn't seem to be in his proper sphere at all. I had heard of hen pecked husbands and now I felt that I saw one. It was on my lips to say, Mr. Blair, if you'll give us a subscription for the haul, I'll mix up your cake for you. But I suddenly thought that it wouldn't be neighbourly to drive too sharp a bargain with a fellow creature in distress. So I offered to mix the cake for him without any conditions at all. He jumped at my offer. He said he'd been used to making his own bread before he was married, but he feared a cake was beyond him, and yet he hated to disappoint his wife. He got me another apron, and Diana beat the eggs, and I mixed the cake. Mr. Blair ran about and got us the materials. He had forgotten all about his apron, and when he ran, it streamed out behind him, and Diana said she thought she would die to see it. He said he could bake the cake all right. He was used to that. And then he asked for our list, and he put down four dollars. So you see, we were rewarded. But even if he hadn't given us cent, I'd always feel that we had done a truly Christian act in helping him. Theodore White's was the next stopping place. Neither Anne nor Diana had ever been there before, and they had only a very slight acquaintance with Mrs. Theodore, who was not given to hospitality. Should they go to the back or the front door? While they held a whispered consultation, Mrs. Theodore appeared at the front door with an armful of newspapers. Deliberately, she laid them down, one by one, on the porch floor and the porch steps, and then down the path to the very feet of her mystified callers. "'Will you please wipe your feet carefully on the grass, and then walk on newspapers,' she said anxiously. "'I've just swept the house all over, and I can't have any more dust tracked in.' path's been real muddy since the rain yesterday. Don't you dare laugh, warned Anne in a whisper as they marched along the newspapers. And I implore you, Diana, do not look at me, no matter what she says, or I shall not be able to keep a sober face. The papers extended across the hall and into a prim, fleckless parlour. Anne and Diana sat down gingerly on the nearest chairs and explained their errand. Mrs. White heard them politely, interrupting only twice once to chase out an adventurous fly, and once to pick up a tiny wisp of grass that had fallen on the carpet from Anne's dress. Anne felt wretchedly guilty. Mrs. White subscribed $2 and paid the money down. To prevent us from having to go back for it, Diana said when they had got away. Mrs. White had the newspapers gathered up before they had their horse untied, and as they drove out of the yard, they saw her busily wielding a broom in the hall. I've always heard that Mrs. Theodore White was the neatest woman alive. I'll believe it after this, said Diana, giving way to her suppressed laughter as soon as it was safe. I'm glad she has no children, said Anne solemnly. Be dreadful beyond words for them if she had. At the Spencers, Mrs. Isabella Spencer made them miserable by saying something ill-natured about everyone in Avonlea. Mr. Thomas Falter refused to give anything because the hall, when it had been built 20 years before, hadn't been built on the site he recommended. Mrs. Esther Bell, who was the picture of health, took half an hour to detail all her aches and pains and sadly put down 50 cents because she wouldn't be there that time of year to do it. No, she would be in her grave. Their worst reception, however, was at Simon Fletcher's. When they drove into the yard, they saw two faces peering at them through the porch window. But although they rapped and waited patiently, and persistently, nobody came to the door. Two decidedly ruffled and indignant girls drove away from Simon Fletcher's. Even Anne admitted that she was beginning to feel discouraged, but the tide turned after that. Several Sloan homesteads came next, where they got liberal subscriptions, and from that to the end, they fared well, with only an occasional snub. Their last place of corn was at Robert Dixon's by the Pond Bridge. They stayed to tea here, although they were nearly home, rather than risk offending Mrs. Dixon, who had the reputation of being a very touchy woman. While they were there, old Mrs. James White called in, I've just been down to Lorenzo's, she announced. He's the proudest man in Avonlea this minute. But what do you think? There's a brand new boy there. And after seven girls, that's quite an event, I can tell you. Anne pricked up her ears. And when they drove away, she said, I'm going straight to Lorenzo White. But he lives on the White Sands Road. "'It's quite a distance out of our way,' protested Diana. "'Gilbert and Fred will canvass him. "'They're not going round until next Saturday. "'It will be too late by then,' said Anne firmly. "'The novelty will be worn off. "'Lorenzo White is dreadfully mean, but he will subscribe to anything just now. "'We mustn't let such a golden opportunity slip, Diana.' The result justified Anne's foresight. Mr. White met them in the yard, beaming like the sun upon an Easter day. When Anne asked for a subscription, he agreed enthusiastically. Certainly, certainly. Just put me down for a dollar more than the highest subscription you've got. That will be five dollars Mr. Daniel Blair put down four. Said Anne, half afraid. But Lorenzo did not flinch. Five it is, and here's the money on the spot. Now I want you to come into the house. There's something in there worth seeing, something very few people have seen as yet. Just come in and pass your opinion. What will we say if the baby isn't pretty? whispered Diana in trepidation as they followed the excited Lorenzo into the house. Oh, there'll be certainly something else nice to say about it, said Anne easily. There always is about a baby. The baby was pretty, however, and Mr. White felt that he got his five dollars worth of the girl's honest delight over the plump little newcomer. But that was the first, last, and only time Lorenzo White ever subscribed to anything. Anne, tired as she was, made one more effort for the public wheel that night, slipping over the fields to interview Mr. Harrison, who was, as usual, smoking his pipe on the veranda with Ginger beside him. Strictly speaking, he was on the Carmody Road but Jane and Gertie, who were not acquainted with him, save by doubtful report, had nervously begged Anne to canvass him. Mr. Harrison, however, flatly refused to subscribe a cent, and all Anne's wiles were in vain. "'But I thought you approved of our society, Mr. Harrison,' she mourned. "'So I do. So I do, but my approval—' doesn't go as deep as my pocket, Anne. Few more experiences such as I have had today would make me as much of a pessimist as Miss Eliza Andrews, Anne told her reflection in the East Gable mirror at bedtime.